and this is AFL Obsessed. It's been another week full of hopeful footy news. I'm so happy we've resumed training this week and incredibly excited that we're on track for games to start back up on June 11th. I know we don't have a fixture yet, and I'm obviously ready, like all of you, with the added hope that Americans will maybe have footy shown on TV here without being interrupted by other sports, like they're somehow like disruptive or something. Uh, but I mean, it looks like baseball is coming back in July and the NBA is still in discussion, but it's just a little bias of mine because I want Aussie footy to be front and center and to have more of the spotlight here in the States before rugby and baseball really. And I guess full contact training starts next week, so that's all been music to my ears and I'm now not as apprehensive when I'm getting AFL updates now. As for updates in the sport, so the Victorian players have been given a list of bylaws, basically, as they prep for the season's return in 22 days, 23 days for us. I'm so happy. And it's pretty clear-cut instruction about what is okay and what is not okay to do. To be honest, for someone living here, those look fairly flexible, because they're really just all directives for reducing risks of exposure, at least for a prolonged period. So in addition to essential trips, the players can also go for a drive, they can take their kids to school, they can pick up their kids from another person's house, they can visit a close friend or family in hospital, and they can move and maintain other properties they own but don't live by. And with governmental restriction, they can go to weddings and funerals. Golf, surfing, boating, and fishing are all out. And maybe it's just me, but I tend to think of those things as kind of more solitary or with fewer people. But they're also not allowed to have social visitors in their home to do any volunteer or community work. And those are along the same lines of directives in terms of rules for players from Western Australia and South Australian clubs who are relocating to hubs in Queensland. The only main differences are they can go to the beach for exercise. And the AFL will pay for the cost of family traveling to and staying in the hubs. They will need to return a negative test before entering, but they won't continue to be tested beyond that. So there is no limit to like a minimum or maximum time for families to be in those hubs. And honestly, these seem pretty generous to me. Not that I had any expectations, but I guess I just thought they would be more restrictive somehow. And as for New York, we went into a formal pause that temporarily prohibited all but essential services in March. And my boyfriend, Andrew, and I are now in our 10th week of quarantine. I mean, it's crazy to think we've been doing this for two and a half months now. I mean, I've told you guys all about how, you know, the day-to-day activities have looked and just what the street activity and noise levels have been like, but basically all non-essential gatherings were banned and those restrictions were revisited on Friday and they've extended the orders for another month until at least June 13th. So since my birthday is June 8th, my personal thanks to the AFL for bringing back footy because that's the best gift really anyone could give me given that I'll be celebrating in isolation. 
And it's been difficult because the weather is improving and everyone who lives here loves the spring season. It's just before the humidity of summer hits and the weather is so agreeable and it's just been getting better and better daily. Like it's so hard to reconcile when it's so beautiful and sunny out that there could be really any element of danger out there. But that said, there are quite a few NYC experiences you can do virtually um, in the interim. And I'll share that on Twitter for anyone who's just curious about the city um, or maybe hasn't been here. There's all kinds of experiences to kind of remind you of what life was like from museum tours to Broadway and like opera shows. And every state now has implemented phases or like stages of openings. So restrictions here will be loosened by area based on like certain metrics, like the decline of total hospitalizations or deaths or like new hospitalizations. And the current debate here has been like whether or not we close the streets down because there's no traffic anyway and parks are closed. So it's just to open up space for people to walk, um, you know, with social distancing for them to be able to do that without like being overcrowded. So the mayor has just announced that 40 miles, which is like 64 kilometers of street closures are going to happen where they're going to um, do sidewalk openings and widenings and have additional bike lanes with a goal of just expanding to like a hundred miles in order to increase that public space for us and to serve communities that are hardest hit by the pandemic. And in terms of what I'm corn streaming and like quarantainment on this end, I feel like I've been gravitating towards comedies um, in terms of shows and I'm still making my way through The Last Dance. So if you haven't heard or you're not watching, as I've said before, just one of the best documentaries I've seen and I've got just a few episodes left. So no spoilers there. And if you have any pods like podcasts to recommend that are true crime or what you're listening to right now, please shoot them my way. Anything that you're really into. Um, I'm just actually thinking back to when I first started listening to podcasts and it was actually one of my best friends, Sky. She was the reason that I got into pods in the first place. She actually insisted a few years ago that I had to get serial season one. <laughs> remember season one, guys? Um, and I just remembered being like, what's a podcast and how much is this subscription going to cost me? But I did have an upcoming road trip where I had to drive all by myself to an airport that was like hours away. And so I downloaded the entire season and I just binged it, I think on the drive there and back. And I think I made it through almost the entire season, just driving alone and I guess like the rest is history because now I always have in my queue probably around 20 to 30 pods that I just kind of cycle through and I listen to. So if you have any good recommendations, my email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail, or you can hit me up on Twitter and that's aflobsessed. And I have a new Insta. If you want to see my pictorial journey going forward, that's also at aflobsessed. So moving along, in keeping with AFL history and the timeline of clubs, I'd like to introduce the Sydney Swans.
a very familiar song to me because that is the Notre Dame fight song. And in 1961, Notre Dame granted the club a copyright to adapt the Victory March into the new club song. So the club was founded in 1874 as the South Melbourne Footy Club and their colors are red and white. And they're known for periods of early success in the comp And they're nicknamed the Bloods because they used to have a red sash on their white jumpers, which also gave them the nickname the Bloodstained Angels. And the sash was replaced with the V that we all know in 1932. And in 1933, an artist from the Herald and Weekly Times suggested the nickname the Swans, um, which was inspired by the number of Western Australia players on the team because the Black Swan is the state emblem of Western Australia. And that was formally adopted as a nickname by the club the following year in 1934. And the nickname stuck because of their association with Albert Park and Lake, which was known for its swans. And it was a really competitive environment in Melbourne in the 80s, and South Melbourne Footy Club was really struggling. And in 1982, the club did relocate to Sydney, making it the first club in the comp to be based outside of Victoria. And that was because in the late 70s and early 80s, the VFL was strategically interested in seeing a club based in Sydney, and they were hoping to capture the appeal of the game in Queensland and in New South Wales. So the league had started moving like a few premiership matches to the Sydney cricket ground annually since like 1979. And in 81, they were preparing to establish an entirely new club there. So after some financial struggles, the South Melbourne board like recognized the difficulties that they faced with viability and financial stability continuing in Melbourne. So they made the decision to play all their 82 games in Sydney. And they shifted and in that relocation shortly after playing their home games at the SCG. So known as the Swans in 1983, there was a brief period of private ownership in the 80s before 93 when the AFL actually stepped in. And even though they had a 72-year premiership drought along with their storied history, they ended that in 2005 when they won. And they're just one of the most consistent teams with a golden era I guess, of like finals appearances in recent history. And they've really embraced that Bloods culture with like a toughness in their defense and with their playing style. So some of their notables players, I feel like that's such a long list. (laughs) Um, 
Bob Pratt, he kicked 150 goals in 1934. I think that's crazy to kick that many goals just in a season. Bob Skilton, who is a three-time Brownlow medalist. Um, Paul Kelly, who was captain for a decade. A plugger again here. I know I mentioned Tony Lockett um, for St. Kilda previously, but again, he also played for the Swans and um, Kappa and Roy Kazali, who has his own place in Australian folklore. He was one of the 12 inaugural legends in the Australian Football Hall of Fame. And if you haven't heard the song up there, Kazali, I love it. It's currently the song I just want to wake up to. It's just like a really bright and cheerful tune. And it's just like a fun, you can find that on YouTube and maybe I'll link it like on Twitter too. So you can find it. Um, and Jared Healy, shout out to On the Couch, which I love. And Adam Goods, um, who has played the most games for them at 372. And obviously Buddy Franklin. As for notable coaches, Norm Smith, um, I know Barassi was there for just a couple of years, and Ruzi. Paul Ruse, who is obviously a favorite here on the U.S. side for so many reasons. And my favorite current player, I think that's a tie between Heaney and Papley, although I love Alir Alir too, um, Isaac Heaney and Tom Papley. And my favorite retired player, Adam Goods, without question, but I've also always loved Heath Grundy too. And I recently watched the 2005 Grand Final. That is an incredibly captivating game from start to finish if you're looking for some footy action right now. And I mean, there's so many like luminaries basically and legends that were in that particular game. Like Ben Cousins is in that game. Chris Judd. Um, Wisha was inside the coach's box, so that was really fun. But Barry Hall, LRT, um, Ruzi was there, actually. And I love seeing the ump outfits even and just how they've changed over time. And what they were wearing even then is not what they're wearing now. And also the 2012 Grand Final for them. Um, it was just a really fun game. I know kind of in the beginning, I think that Hawthorne was favored when they were coming into that game, but really like in the first quarter, I don't think you could really tell what way that game was going to go pretty much for most of the game. Um, but yeah, there were really dramatic sways back and forth. And Mike Pike is a Canadian player. So that was really fun to see. And it's, I guess, only natural for him to wear the Sydney colors, red and white, because he is Canadian. And it was really great to see Ruffy, Buddy, and Jordan Lewis, like the friends, just all play together and to see Haji too. And so many people that were in that game are still playing today, like Sean Burgoyne and Liam Shields. Oh, and Reese Shaw was really fun to see there too, <laughs> just um, before his coaching days. So... The spotlight segment is going to be a little bit different this time because I wanted to throw a quick spotlight on Chelsea Rafi because she became the first woman to officiate an AFL grand final when she was selected as a goal umpire for that game in 2012. You can see her in a lot of the replays, but 
you know, she's been on the AFL ump list since 2004 and she's umped a whole bunch of games since then, but major applause for that first infield and for changing the game. Okay, so I know I'm obsessed, but there's always been a mystery to me of who the first American player in the AFL was, just because I'm at that next level of obsession. And I think some people think of Jason Holmes as the first American to play in the AFL because he played five games for St. Kilda from 2014 to 2017. And I think a lot of people maybe even think of Mason Cox. But I was just going down the rabbit hole of who may or may not be the first. And Don Pike, who played for West Coast, and we all know that he coached the Crows, he technically was born in Illinois and when his dad was studying and teaching here in the States. So I found that to be really interesting. But Sanford Wheeler, like he might be considered um, one of the first Americans to play for the AFL. He actually played 43 games for the Sydney Swans between 89 to 94. And I mean, he was coached by the great Ron Barassi. And after a serious knee injury, he retired. And then he came back to the States where he lived in California. So his story, I think, is just really interesting. And sadly, Sanford passed away in March earlier of this year. But I think he'll live on in legend and he'll be in the history books for having, you know, been a first. And that's it for me. Thanks for hanging. And if you can think of someone who might enjoy this pod, I hope you'll share it with them. And if you'd like to send in a spotlight segment nomination, feel free to share their name with me. My email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail. And Twitter is just AFL Obsessed. So stay safe and healthy, everyone. Check on your friends and neighbors. We'll get through this like footy. I'm virtually hugging you always, and we'll talk footy soon. Bye.